You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Public Access America. My name is Jason. I manage the podcast. You can find Public Access America on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, Google Play, Spotify, and more. You can find Public Access America on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Public Access America on Twitter at Public Access Pod. Feel free to look up Adam Has a Beard or the Denton County Collective podcasts where you're going to find some of our conversations coming to life in grassroots forms. Thank you for being here. Here's our theme song and then we're going to get right into the topic. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents. In front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world. Eight billion people. And if you're going to figure out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of ten people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. Here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and fighting our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. I'd like to begin a discussion 
about actual legislation being proposed in the Congress. First, I think we need to agree on some basic facts. The United States House of Representatives is the lower house. The Senate is the upper house. Together, they comprise the United States Congress. Along with the executive branch and the judicial branch, the Congress is the legislative branch. The word government simply means the balance and equality of each of these branches to be both support and a check on one another. The work done by the people in the government is governing. The work of those people to get elected, re-elected, the reporting of these efforts, the attack ads, the wedges, the rhetoric, that's politics. Politics has nothing to do with governing, and governing is what affects our daily lives, not the politics as you might have been told to believe. Think of politics as the trailer for a great movie, while governing is the original book. H.R. 1 is a bill proposed by our latest elected House of Representatives. Before we start to debate the bill, as our Senate was paid to do, I think what is really important here for us to know is, is, is what is the House of Representatives? I mean to us. It won't take long, and I think this is a perspective that we need for further conversation. The House is composed of representatives who sit in congressional districts, allocated to each state on a basis of population as measured by the census, with each district entitled to one representative. Which is to say, every 10 years the government counts us and where we live in the country. One of the reasons for this count is to make sure every person has a representative in the House, in Congress, and therefore in government. You live in what's called a district in your state. (laughs) Yes, like the Hunger Games. Every one of these districts, as a community, gets together to pick someone to represent them. This is your representative. This representative is yours. Think of that person as your governmental avatar. I can't stress this point enough. If you have a grievance with the federal government, this is the person you call, email, follow, question, research, elect, or eliminate for a new representative. This person is you standing up to the government and speaking to the government on issues that matter to you, to your community. If there's one thing I would hope you do right now this minute is look that person up. Begin to be proactive. Is this representative representing you correctly? That's why the house is so important. It's literally us. You and me. Or it would be if people interacted more with their representatives. When we don't, that person does what they think is best. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and power unchecked is left to its own morals. Our power as a people depends on our involvement with these representatives. 
quickly, and because I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, your senator is a representative of your state and your state government, which should actually represent the people in the state and their well-being. So the people we asked to speak on our behalf, our avatars, came up with a bill. It was their first bill, H.R. 1, to expand America's access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, and strengthen ethic rules for public servants and for other purposes. This bill was introduced January 3, 2019, placed on the calendar for Senate consideration March 14, 2019. It's now summer of 2020, and the leader of the Senate refuses to even begin a debate on it. The literal first thing on his to-do list, Mitch McConnell, refuses to touch or talk about it. Imagine doing a day's worth of work, handing it to your boss, and your boss ignoring the work. That boss, though, he isn't lazy. He either doesn't value your work, or he wants to make it look like you're doing nothing. I think there's corruption in government. That starts with corruption in politics and in our politicians. Who are we sending? What are they agreeing to to get there? What compromises are being made to get the job just to represent us? This bill addresses that, I think. We'll find out in the upcoming conversation. Let's begin with an explanation of the bill by the House leadership. This is just what is said by the folks that created the bill. It may or may not be accurate. Representation of the actual legislation, honestly, I'm excited to find out about. Doing that with you, listening, interacting, (laughs) that's even better. The, The people debating a bill and learning at the same time, that's what Public Access America is for. So we're going to go ahead right now and listen to House Leadership explain H.R. 1. So uh, yesterday we made history, again, swearing in this transformative freshman class when they took the oath, they, are make, they made a difference. Today, guided by our new members and the American people that they represent, uh, that we all represent, We are introducing H.R. 1 to hold legislation to clean up corruption and restore integrity to government. We put power in back, in back into the hands of the people. What's really important about this, because in our For the People agenda, we talked about lowering health care costs by lowering prescription drug prices and protecting people with pre-existing conditions. We talked about lowering, increasing, lowering health care costs, increasing paychecks by building the green infrastructure of America from sea to shining sea. And we gave people confidence that this could happen in a way that was in the people's interest, not the special interest, because of H.R. 1. It's important for what it does. It's important for the confidence it gives people that their voices and their concerns are heard. So uh, that restoring the people's faith in government works (coughs) 
is really our agenda. We're thrilled that so many champions of democracy are here in this room representing organizations who fought this fight for such a long time. And again, we are, the bill, you'll hear more about it, but it has many features. One of them is about setting us up for the Voting Rights Act, which may, will not be a part of the first as we go forward because we have to build the constitutional record to do that. But we will do that in a short order, and then we'll have the complete H.R. 1 passed by the House of Representatives with the knowledge, transparency, that the American people will know that this is an option that the House has given the Senate of the United States and the President of the United States uh, to uh, take action in support of the American people, for the people. Uh, with that, now I'm very pleased to yield to the chair of our task force, our champion on integrity and in government, Congressman John Sarbanes. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Speaker Pelosi. Thank you for your leadership and your commitment uh, to this agenda of giving the American people their voice back. Last year, when candidates were out campaigning to their constituents, new candidates and candidates were running for re-election, we heard loud and clear from the American people that they feel left out and locked out too often from their own democracy that they want us to fight the culture of corruption. They want us to clean up Washington, fix the system, and give them their voice back. They want to be able to get to the ballot box without having to run an obstacle course. They want it to be easy, not hard, to register and vote in America. And H.R. 1 will address that concern. They want to make sure that when people come to Washington to serve, whether it's in the legislative branch or the executive branch, or as a member of the judiciary, they behave themselves. They abide by ethics. They have integrity that they're open and transparent. So H.R. 1 addresses ethical responsibility. And finally, they kept saying to us over and over and over again, don't get tangled up in the money. We don't want special interests and people who write big checks to govern our democracy, to determine what the legislative calendar is going to look like. We want the people's priorities to be reflected. So we have to fight back against special interests and big money, and H.R. 1 does that. We carried a message of reform, of fighting corruption, of cleaning up Washington. We made a promise to the American people. The new members who've come made that promise and made it clear they wanted this to be the first order of business. So H.R. 1 is delivering on that promise back to the American people and telling them in, re in return for you giving us the gavel, we are going to do everything we can every single day to give you your democracy back and make sure that this truly is a government of, by, and for the people. So that thank you for being here today. And it's my privilege, someone who's been a fighter for democracy, he talks about fighting for the soul of our democracy every single day, the new chairman of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, Elijah Cummings. Elijah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, John. John, I want to thank you for putting your blood, sweat, and tears in this effort. You have been f simply spectacular. 
I want to thank Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Hoyer, and uh, for your leadership uh, with regard to this historic package. The midterm elections were monumental and indeed historic. The American people gave Congress a mandate to finally start conducting credible oversight and enacting reforms. Over the last two years, President Trump set the tone from the top in his administration that behaving ethically and complying with the law is optional. Ladies and gentlemen, I've stopped by here to simply say we're better than that. We're better than that. It cannot be optional. We have seen gross abuses from agency heads such as former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. This is why we are introducing the For the People Act. This bill includes a number of reforms that will strengthen our accountability for the executive branch officials, including the president. Here is what we are focusing on in our oversight committee, requiring the president to disclose his financial interests as soon as he takes office or she takes office, prohibiting executive branch officials from lobbying their own agencies for two years after they leave, prohibiting procurement officers from going to work for companies they awarded contracts to for at least two years after they leave, strengthening the government's ethics watchdog, the Office of Government Ethics, and making it more independent, making any waivers, any waivers from ethics rules available to the American people. And that was House Leadership discussing H.R. 1. We're going to go now to Mitch McConnell and how he feels about H.R. 1. Thank you for listening to Public Access America. Now, Mr. President, on an entirely different matter, um, I spoke for the first time yesterday on the subject that House Democrats have crowned their signature effort for this Congress, H.R. 1 also known as the Democratic Politician Protection Act. Speaker Pelosi and her colleagues are advertising it as a package of urgent measures to save American democracy. What it really seems to be is a package of urgent measures to rewrite the rules of American politics for the exclusive benefit of the Democratic Party. Yesterday, I gave a brief tour through several of the most bizarre components of their proposal. Today, I'd like to focus on just one of the legislation's major victims, the American taxpayer. H.R. 1 would victimize every American taxpayer by pouring their money into expensive new subsidies that don't even pass the laugh test. In several new ways, it would put every taxpayer on the hook to line the pockets of candidates, campaigns, and outside consultants. Do you look forward to bumper stickers, robocalls, attack ads, and campaign mail that descend on the country in seemingly endless cycles? Speaker Pelosi must think you do, because she wants you to pay for these things with your tax dollars. You get the opportunity with your money to pay for attack ads and bumper stickers and the rest. 
This bill creates brand new government subsidies, government subsidies both for political campaign donors and for the campaigns themselves. The federal government would start matching political donations the same way some employers match gifts to, to charity. You'd be literally funding attack ads for the candidates you disagree with. How about that? Your money funding ads for the candidates you disagree with. Maybe that's why every Democrat opposed our tax cuts for middle-class families and small businesses. They were counting on that money to pull off this stimulus package, if you will, for campaign consultants. And for what reason? To increase competition? Well, studies have shown that incumbents win just as often in taxpayer-funded elections as they do when campaigns are funded with private money. To reduce corruption? Hardly. Jurisdictions that have toyed with taxpayer-funding political systems have turned out to be replete with misappropriation, personal use, straw donors, and public corruption scandals. So I remain curious why exactly the Democratic Political Protection Act wants to offer the American people's money to thousands of candidates that run for the House of Representatives every two years, whether they support these candidates or not. They want citizens to bankroll political materials that they totally disagree with. But they aren't stopping there, Mr. President. Democrats also want taxpayers on the hook for generous new benefits for federal bureaucrats and government employees. Their bill would make Election Day a new paid holiday for government workers and create an additional brand new paid leave benefit for up to six days for any federal bureaucrat who decides they'd like to hang out at the polls during any election. Just what America needs, another paid holiday and a bunch of government workers being paid to go out and work. I assume our folks on, our colleagues on the other side, on their campaigns. This is the Democrat plan to restore democracy? A brand new week of paid vacation for every federal employee who'd like to hover around while you cast your ballot? A Washington-based taxpayer-subsidized clearinghouse for political campaign funding? A power grab that's smelling more and more like exactly what it is. That's where we're going to start our discussion today. House Resolution 1. What is it? Why should we care? Do we even like it? Does it go too far or not far enough? Let's bring in some friends and find out. Thank you for listening to Public Access America. All right. So this is just coming in from that um, track that I shared you about HR1. Yeah. So we're just, uh, hey, Jeffrey, how you doing? We're back. Excellent. Killing it, right? Right. You know, <laughs> you think about it, you, you look at what is going on right now in the in, in the United States. And if there's ever a question about why voting is so important, you mm. know, I hope I hope that this has answered some questions for some people. I hope so. I hope so. I think, um, I, you know, especially now because of the Ruth Gator, Ruth Bader. Oh, my God. 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> I should say for everybody, we are recording in the morning this time, and so I don't know if my brain is quite up there. I'm I'm still sucking down my coffee, but I'm getting there. So yeah, because of that and Mitch McConnell wanting to replace her, I kind of feel like get your work done first, and then you can have your fun, right? There's like so many bills out there that that are just sitting on his desk, like just collecting dust that could help us. And so I really wanted to get to the start and talk about HR one, like the first bill that this Congress put forth for him to debate. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think it's yeah. important because you were saying that you wanted to talk about voting and voter rights. And I was like, yeah, but I want to talk about HR one. And then I researched HR one and I was like, Oh, I get it. Voting, <laughs> voting, voting it's you know hr1 is is so it's it's an interesting piece of legislation and it's it's also one of those things where um like anything else it's really it's it's out in draft land mm-hmm. you know and that's and that's really you know the issue at hand and 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 the senate's refusal to take it up you know, is is entirely due to the fact that it's only supported on party lines. Mm. But everything so, is these days. Exactly. So, you know, in that clip you sent me, you hear McConnell talking about how, you know, it's going to be bad for this and bad for that and this, that, and the other. And, and I spent some time looking to see what I could find. And I think the only legitimate gripe that he he has – is is around the whole making it a holiday thing because what you're asking is you're asking for a federal holiday but then making people work that federal holiday because we got to vote and so you know that that in and of itself is a problem i mean i i do feel like that you know we need some way to address people being unable to vote on election day and vote in person agreed but, you know, but there's more than one way to do that. And, and right now what you're seeing is those scare tactics play out in, you know, on the right side, mail-in voting is bad. Well, how do we know that this person's actually qualified to vote? Well, you know, we're going to have to investigate like down in Florida where Bloomberg wants to pay, you know, for 31,000 inmates, you know, former inmates to have their voting rights restored. And, you know, now they're like, well, is that even constitutional or legal? It's like, well, who's to say that, you know, he's putting any sort of requirement on who they vote for. If he did that, that's illegal. (laughs) That's right. They, They said that the, they, the bill was to give voting rights back, to felons in Florida. And mm-hmm. then the Florida legislator put on this, you know, requirement that people pay restitution and taxes and other things to get their rights back. And so it becomes a poll tax and that in and of itself has been made illegal. And and I think that's one of the biggest struggles right now is is that you know, a lot of people are seeing it as a poll tax. And unfortunately, if it were just simply a poll tax, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I think the issue at hand is, is that you have, you have this very high burden of societal debt that requires you to number one, stay in, you know, be in prison, be jailed, you know, however you may be confined. Mm. 
But then with your record now attached to you, you're now somehow supposed to go out, find meaningful and gainful employment, so that way you can finish paying off you know, that debt to society. Sure. But the reality is, is that you have with that record, you're, you don't have people able to do that. So they spend the rest of their life without their, you know, rights Mm -hmm. doing everything that they can to try and get those restored. Some people are lucky enough that they, you know, either find something or make something, but there seems to be a, a, a much larger portion of that population that, that just never comes to fruition for them. And that, that should tell you something. Yeah. And I think, First of all, I don't think that their rights should have been taken away that way. I think that you should never have your right to vote taken away. But second, I think that these people drift off into a sub-society that just learns to survive underneath and between things, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's where we get sex work and drug dealers and we get, you know, the um, society that we have running just below the surface and that's the issue we could get rid of that just by simply reinstating people's right mhm or or making it making it easier for them to finish paying that debt to society and that could be something as simple as you know they're not you know you're you're not tied down to uh how to put it you're you're not necessarily restricted due to the fact that you have been in a correctional institute. I mean, Mm. if the whole point of a correctional institute is to have you pay your debt to society and become a member of society again, then why is it that this prison system complex is now extending outside of its walls? Mm. And until we address that issue, I mean, it's just Department of Punishments to me. And and unfortunately, part of that punishment is that, you know, one of your very core democratic rights has been taken away from you. And that, I, I do agree with you, is, 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 it should not, is not something that should be taken away. Right. I know in the South, laws were created so that they could take this voting away from, because... After after the slaves were freed and Reconstruction, they they became a whole person. They weren't three fifths of a person anymore. So the mm-hmm. goal the goal was to take away that right from anybody we possibly could. So they created jaywalking laws that weren't enforced as harshly on the white person as on the black person. But yet the black person still had to cross the street whenever a white couple was approaching or a white woman. So. In essence, you had to cross the street and jaywalk, and therefore you had to have your right taken away because it was a felony for a black person to jaywalk. And mm-hmm. so, and I, I hate bringing it up because I I want to I I believe that the law is colorblind. It's neutral. It's in writing one of the places where you can find equality. But the truth is, is there our our laws have grown from things like that where the law could hurt somebody more than somebody else and therefore we get to regulate our regulation it's it, the 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 color of the law is like you said it's it's neutral it's it's supposed to be equal app it's supposed to be equal under the eyes and unfortunately it's the application process that mm-hmm. is not colorblind unfortunately and and you know, like you see 
you know, with issues regarding, you know, one of the things that I've had to point out, <clears throat> if you look at the Department of Justice's own data, who do you think commits the most crime? Oh, black people, obviously. No. 74% of crime committed in this country is committed by white people. Mm. That's, the department, that's the Department of Justice's own data. That's scary. I wonder what kind of crimes. Um, I didn't really see a, a huge breakdown of it. It's, you know, it's, as a data nerd, it's something I would like. But now, now tell me who do you think is the population that is jailed the most? Mm, no, I know that's black people. Brown people. Mm, black and brown people. Yeah. And it's only after about age 34 that the population starts to kind of even out towards all races, but mm. predominantly in the younger populations, black and brown people at, at, at an almost eight to one for black people. Right. Eight, eight in prison to eight black people in prison to one white person. Despite the fact that you have 74% of crime committed by white folks, that's, you know, to, that is, you know, where you really have to see that it's not that the law itself is the problem. It's the application of it. Yeah. And it's being applied on one side very hard. And so, you know, you either have to question one of two things. You either have to question the process or you have to question the law. And to me, having seen the process, that's where I know I would start. Of course. So do you, you think know, it's a, a matter of policing? Because I heard somebody suggest that if the white communities were policed, like the black communities were policed, it would even out. Um, no, because even that, the way, the reason I say no is because if white communities were policed the way black communities were, the number of crimes that are committed, white people still commit more crime. Mm. So it's not a matter of, it's not, getting people arrested is not a matter of policing. Getting people killed is, absolutely. In these days, yeah. Um, but in terms of conviction and people ending up behind bars, it's the process that gets them there. Um, because, I mean, we're already seeing it. You know, if white people are committing most of the crime, but they're not the majority ending up in jail, you know, the police can only charge you. They can't convict you and put you in jail. Yeah, they don't decide the terms. That's true. So, so, so right there is your problem. You know, right there is the start of the problem that you got to dive into is, is that, you know, the policing side has its issues that have to be addressed period end of story, especially the way that their use of the use of force tends to escalate on people of color. Yeah. But I mean, we're getting, we're getting past all these Ahmaud Arbery's and Brianna, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're getting to the what's happening when they're not getting shot. Like they're, yeah. they're being picked up. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that white people are being picked up more. But then when they get to the jail, what's happening when they get, at that point? When they get, when it is time for their day in court, it's, that's what's happening. Well, even before and, that, when bail is set. you Well, you've got bail issues. I would honestly say that it's more an issue of representation mm -hmm. because think about it. 
who, you know, if, if you are, if you have a population that can't afford a good attorney, poor people get stuck in jail, you know, and that's across the board, white, black, brown, does not matter. That's a good point. It's, but when it comes to justice, it's about being able to afford a good attorney. And when you have a defense system that is overtaxed because you have so many cases being thrown in there, it makes it hard for public defenders to, you know, work and seek justice for their clients, you know, in a timely manner. And unfortunately, you, you know, I would also say that when it comes to prosecution and charging, you have different standards. Um, I would say that when it comes to, you know, prosecution and grand jury, that's where you really need to start is, you know, how are they making the case against these people? Yeah. I mean, we've learned about that from the Breonna Taylor cases that the grand jury could convict a ham sandwich if they wanted to. (laughs) And that's, and that's the thing is, it's like, you can, you know, you can get, you can get an indictment if you try hard enough. And, and the question is, you know, are you willing to try hard enough to get that indictment? And unfortunately, I, I think it comes down to prosecutorial integrity um, at the start of it. Now, there's a whole lot of other issues at hand, like whether or not, um, you know, whether or not, you know, people who need a public defender have access to, you know, good representation, um, you know, or is it, is it just an issue that by volume, you know, they're, you know, these public defenders are doing the best they can with what they got. And unfortunately what they got isn't much. Right. Of course. But you know, the person who goes out and they hire an independent attorney, you know, they're getting somebody who's more dedicated to their case, who's going to spend the time filing all the motions, looking over everything. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, that leaves the poor population, which guess who falls under the poor population more often than not? It leaves them without, I would say, the best justice that could be given to them. Right. And I would argue that 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 part is done by design. Yeah. I will say quickly that we at Florida Action Podcast, we had a chance to take sit down with Tiffany Baker, who is running for a second circuit judge. And we we grilled her pretty hard on that is that and does she see the bias and how is she going to avoid that and i think people taking part in these things is going to make a huge difference we're we're all staring at donald trump right now but i'm telling you as you heard in this episode you want to talk to your your district representatives and lower commissioners, sheriffs, mayors. These are the people that affect your day-to-day lives and they're the rock stars that you can contact. You can send an email to your mayor and you will get a response, whereas you will never get a response from Donald Trump. And so if you want to be effective, if you want to change things or get into a rhythm of knowing about things, that's where I think you should start. You have to get involved at your local level. I think everybody wants to start blaming things at the top. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of that it's kind of that interesting irony of people yelling that trickle down economics doesn't work, 
but somehow all of this trickle down from Donald Trump and everything else works. Trickle down reality, politics. Trickle down politics. Yeah. But the reality is, is that a lot of this stuff is local. You know, Donald Trump doesn't have any sway over whether or not your local police department is going to take up policing reforms. That's, That's your right. community. You got to be involved at your community level. Yep. It's it's your it's your it's your county prosecutor. It's it's your county. Uh, it, it's your state attorney general. Yep. It's, your public defenders. You know, I'm thinking more along the lines of the politicians. Your 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 mm-hmm. your public defenders, they just you know, they're just hired like any you know other county nope. employee the, is. Well, they're voted on here, and they oh, get, you get you get they, public defenders voted on down there, and they get they get a they get control of like a sixteen million dollar budget a year, and so this is somebody you want to know about. Why are they fighting so hard to get a seat <clears throat> to defend the poor? You know what I mean? These are things you want to know, and and so. Check out Florida Action Podcast because you might learn a template of how to hold people accountable from Sierra and me. So, absolutely, and 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 I think that's one of the things that you know in in all of what has happened, and especially in all of 2020, learning how to hold your local uh, politician accountable is mm-hmm. is one of those things. And I do think that one of those things has to be holding your local politicians accountable for being able to restore voting rights. Right. And and figuring out how you how you take up that reform so that way your local, you know, your local formerly incarcerated population can actually be a member of society again because, you know, as as I think we've talked about before, if you don't change the way that that system works, all you have are a bunch of people that are just going to do what they can to get by and to survive. Right. And unfortunately, that's usually more crime. And so HR1, it, it expands access to the ballot box by, by – um by taking aim at institutional barriers, you know? And mm-hmm. so that's where we're kind of getting at, like the cumbersome paperwork and um, mm-hmm. we got regulations here, systems. There's a whole bunch of words. Disenfranchisement is another word in here, mm-hmm. limiting voting. And so I think that's where we were heading is that is there a, is there a way for the federal government to kind of throw up an assist to states' rights to people in states, is there a way for is there a way for the federal government to create a bill to regulate that better to have some say in it? I, I absolutely, uh, absolutely. With I, I think it's just once again, it's about the method that you you get this stuff done. You know, <clears throat> it's. The method is probably the most important, and I think, you know, it's one of the most, you know, overlooked pieces of of the whole legislation process. You know, for example, one of the things that I saw within HR one was the whole, you know, immediate registration, immediate voter registration. Mm, you know, okay. upon yep, and and to me, it's like okay, I can see where that would be a great thing. But they're wanting to make it the make the process so that way it's more online, and you know, being the computer nerd that I am, you know, red flags go up for me immediately because what there's not going to be, you know, this mass voter fraud issue that so many people are claiming there's going to be. Yeah, but. 
I will say that, you know, having automatic voter registration does open up that possibility a little bit more. Where I think that it should be addressed, however, is, you know, what happens your senior year of high school? You turn 18. Register for the Army. You, 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 you register for selective service. Yeah. So at that point, you know, why is it that you're not also getting the paperwork at that point to register to vote? Right. So I think, I think that there's a, a different way that it needs to be addressed. But once again, same end goal. People mm. got to get registered to vote. Yeah. But also, too, people have to understand that importance of voting. And I mean, I have, I was on a thread with a couple of friends, you know, about why 16 year olds are not allowed to vote and, you know, all these things that 16 year olds are allowed to do in Europe that 16 year olds don't do here in America. And Mm. it's like, well, because I know 16 year old me would have thought voting for Donald Trump was just cool without understanding the politics behind what Donald Trump is. Yeah. It's a, and, and and that's the problem because I hadn't had government civics at that point. Gotcha. There was this guy on American Idol, Sanjaya, and Mm -hmm. people thought it was hilarious to vote him in. Like he was the worst singer ever, you know, and people just kept voting for him and voting for him. And he was just like, I'm the best, but no, it was a joke. And so when I saw it happening with Donald Trump, I was like, oh, this is the American Idol effect. People want to know if they can if they can mess with the system and they found out that they could, and they could put the most hilarious joke in as president. And, and unfortunately, you know, in, in the internet age, that's what's going to be possible. But I also Mm -hmm. think too, that, that in the internet age, this is how we're going to find politicians who might better align with our worldview because the internet offers this unique ability. Like, you know, you think about it, you and I are at complete opposite ends of, of the country, mm-hmm. but we're having a face to face conversation. Now imagine being able to do that with your local, uh, with your local politician, but now put that out on a federal level. Imagine being able to sit down and have a conversation with someone who might, you know, be a presidential candidate and find yeah. out, Hey, are you actually, you know, what I hope you are? Right. And I think the first president that figures, or the first, you know, president elect to figure that out, that they can use this tool to really engage uh, a larger audience, but also in a way make it more personal. Yeah. I think that's that will be the first time you see another major landslide in terms of elections is someone who really just gets down to it. Yeah. I think if Bernie Sanders had been about 25 years younger, that's exactly what he would have done. Yep. Yep. Obama, everybody freaked out when Obama sat in the garage and talked on a podcast. They love that shit. You know what I mean? And I'll exactly. say I sent I sent a message to Joe Biden and and Donald Trump saying I have four podcasts, it makes sense for you to do one conversation with us. You know what I mean? You know, whether, whether or not it actually happens, you know, that's another story. But at the right. same time, you know, I, I think that the first person who figures out that they could, you know, run their campaign like that mm-hmm. without having to spend millions upon millions upon millions of dollars on tour buses, but, you know, be able to meet with people one-on-one there. I mean, there definitely is something about being in the same room as someone and shaking their hand, 
but you're not going to be able to sit down and have one-on-one conversations and feel like you get to know a person. Mm -hmm. So I agree. And I think that the unique thing about podcasts is the fact that you can have a very localized audience, but you can also have a nation listening as well as a global like audience as well. And so I always think that our, our, our conversations are America-based and what's going on and in a pretty nonpartisan way, I like to say so far. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, is other countries around the world that are listening to see if America is falling apart are listening to podcasts like this and seeing they're hearing that Americans, they're pretty normal right? We're not, we're not fracturing at the, at the seams like the media says. We're rational. Mm-hmm. We're having rational conversations. We, we want policy to be forced upward instead of being forced down upon us. And so converse, conversations like this matter. And I think, that's, I think what, that's what Joe Biden is missing is that he is, well, I, I want to say he, he had a a spree where he was just doing podcasts nonstop and mm-hmm. Anthony Fauci was doing podcasts nonstop. And it, I think it really makes a difference on a grassroots level. Absolutely. It does. You know, how else do you feel like you're going to sit down and have a candid conversation with someone? Because we all know that the media is just, you know, tidbits and snippets that, mm-hmm. you know, grab eyeballs, but people actually want to feel like they're sitting down to listen into a conversation with the politician that they're voting for. Yes. That was the basis for these shows was to grab politicians. And I told Adam, let's grab your, you know, Danny Heck, let's uh, Maria Cantwell, let's get them in and show people they're normal people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had Lauren Culp on. Just show us you're a normal person. Tell us your views. Now, I didn't agree mm-hmm. with his views on homelessness and incarceration, but I could see that he was a real human that really cared about Washington. Yeah. And, 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 you know, once again, it all comes back down to attack the method, mm-hmm. not the man, unless the man happens to be a racist or a homophobe, then you know what? Open season, you but know, there's, because there's, there's, still, just, there's, there's some still. things you just can't, you can't subscribe to in this, in this day and age. And but there's so many actually, other things to attack him on. And so oh, going there feels like these petty things. Yeah. We both know that, the, you know, that stuff happened, but his policies, his policies to dig deregulate the killing of baby bears. I don't know why that was necessary in a pandemic. We should talk about mm. that. You know, that's the important thing. The thing, the way, He's going about cheating. We need to highlight that. We have to stop complaining about him being orange mm-hmm. or small hands or the way he stands. It's all ridiculous, but we need to talk about the shit he's doing to, to, to mm-hmm. somebody said we need to address the fact that these protesters want to burn the country to the ground. And I said, the protesters are a certain segment of the population. And right now we're talking about a certain segment of the population in the conservative realm that is currently burning it down. So let's talk about that. Right. You know, it's, and, and (laughs) it's, you know, voting is what's going to change that metric. And, and like I told you earlier this week, you know, I had an interesting conversation with my mom and, Mm. and a little background for, for listeners, you know, I grew up in rural Montana, very conservative part of the the world. 
and you know when when you live in in that in in those areas where you're not traveling you're not seeing other people you're not experience the experiencing the wider world it's very easy to allow your worldview to be shaped by what you see around you because mm-hmm. one of the things that you know you see this giant disconnect with right now is is that you know from the media you see that everything is burning down around it i mean they labeled seattle an anarchist jurisdiction yep i mean the reality is is that there's like maybe a couple thousand people out protesting at any given point if so, if that's anarchism, man, that's you know the the threshold is pretty low, right? But you're seeing it on TV all over the place, so it looks like it's much, much more than it actually is. It looks, you know, if you if you go by what's happening on television, it looks absolutely terrible. Until you real, until you actually sit down with a map and you realize that what's happening is only happening in one small area of Seattle, right? And Adam said he went to Chad and he said it was like a block party. You know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the fires and looting and everything that it was made out to be. And, and because, you know, that, even that is a small segment of the population that was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even, you know, even in, in Olympia where, you know, we've had protests and, you know, everybody's trying to make it out to be, you know, this humongous, horrible, awful thing that it is. It is really a small segment of the population. Now we can get into the discussion of, you know, the whole burning and looting and, you know, destroying public property. But I think that doesn't serve. I don't, I don't think that it serves the point that, that they're trying to make is, is that something's got to change. Local politicians aren't listening and unfortunately until, you know, for some people it's that until it happens to me, I don't care. That's and right. growing up in conservative Montana, that was really where it was at. Is is that you know, you think about that. If your entire worldview is shaped just solely by what you see happening right around you, if if you don't see anything broken, you know, how how hard is it for you to actually sit down and go, Well, you know, well, why should I vote for that? That's not a problem here. Right. And, and really, that's, you know, kind of where the whole issue of surrounding voting started, you know, on top of reading HR1 for me was is that remembering back to, you know, what I grew up with versus what I've come to learn. It's like, I understand now why some of the things that are out there are issues. But if I had to go back to just my small Montana worldview where I was mm-hmm. at, right. it wasn't a problem. No. You know, I grew up I grew up with a very rainbow colored family. You know, I have well, you're lucky then. And I have I have black cousins, I have Japanese cousins, I have Korean cousins, I have Mexican cousins. One of my one of my cousins married a Mexican migrant worker's daughter. You know, I grew up with a very diverse family. And so when I hear that when I would hear that, you know, all of these things around me are broken, mm-hmm. but I have this family here that, you know, is usually treated pretty well by the community. I can't say always because I don't know their personal experience 100% of the time. Right. But what was happening around me was that, you know, they were a part of the community. They were 
no different than, you know, me. Right. And so to sit down and say that there was this great big problem and divide didn't make any sense because from what I could see, that just wasn't the case. Yeah. So it's like, how could this be a problem when what I'm seeing is definitely not that? And it wasn't until I moved to bigger cities that I was like, Oh, yo, that's why it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a, a very diverse middle, lower middle class, you know, section of town where it was a diverse community. And I just, I, my friends were, were everyone. And then, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't until I graduated and I started making my own groups of friends, like customizing my groups that I realized, wow, these people are pretty white and they're, they're pretty, pretty racist in this, like, the way they joked and treated people. And I just didn't like that. So when I finally had a chance to move on my own, I moved into a lower class, you know, where I was a major minority and I Mm -hmm. just tried to get to know the people and I found it amazing. I lived, there was no gunshots. There was nothing like people say I couldn't get pizza delivered to my apartment because of, because of the demographic where I lived, Mm -hmm. but they were great people, man, you know, and I had oh, a absolutely. great time with it. And so I have a real problem with racism. I just think people don't, don't know enough, enough, uh, enough people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, like when I spent my time in Phoenix, you know, I had, you know, I lived in an area of town for a while where, you know, surrounded by, you know, a lot of Mexican families and just hanging out with them, you know, I came from a large Catholic family. Mm. Their family gatherings were literally no different than my family gatherings. It's just that, you know, they spoke Spanish. That's right. And they ate a different food. Everything else was almost exactly the same. I had more in common with people that I couldn't understand (laughs) than I did with the white folks, most of the white folks in Phoenix. That's the way I feel. It was like, wow, this is this is all really odd because I've I never felt that way before, you know. I like I said, I had a very diverse family. I always felt like, you know, it was it was easy enough to get along. But then moving down to Phoenix, when I first saw how much of an issue this was, it's like, oh, okay, mm. you know, you have people looking down on on Mexican families, and and I always said, you know, you know, it's hot down there, but it's a dry hate. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it was just really weird, you know, having had that kind of family connection, you know, growing up Catholic and then experiencing that with a group of people that I couldn't understand. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I felt sp- like I felt like I was family with them. Exactly, and that's how it is because there is so many similarities. Somebody gives <laughs> you a plate of food, it doesn't matter what it is, you're eating it, you're laughing, you're having fun. Yeah, laughing, having drinks, and, you know, people were, you know, it it was a different kind of music. They were singing, they were having fun, but, you know, that was the thing. It was, they were having fun, and Mm -hmm. by virtue of them having a good time, I was having a good time. Yeah, yeah, and I think learning about, learning more about people, I learned about the Sikh religion uh, for Mm -hmm. an episode of Public Access America, and I learned that that turban means that person is honor-bound to protect you. You know, mm-hmm. and so if you see that turban, you run up to it, 
give it a hug because it's there to protect you, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's where we need to get back to. I can't imagine giving somebody a shitty day because I'm racist, you know? <laughs> like, I can just ignore you just as easily. It's less work to just walk past somebody than to stop and be racist to them, you know? Um, you know, that's, and that's exactly it, you know? Some people have gone out of their way to make it, you know, whatever point they think they're trying to make. And really, Boy. this is this is where I tell people that free speech is important because when we see people act like this, you know, a lot of people who you know may may or may not have ever thought about race in any sort of context are now looking at at all of this collective data that's being recorded and put online. They're like, wow, okay. You know, there's an instance, there's an instance, there's an instance, you know, every week there's some new racist tirade that's been recorded and put out on the public. And, and I think there's a, you know, the, at least the younger groups, like my, my kids age, they're, they're seeing that, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of the older group that just doesn't seem to get it. And right. And that's, that's where going back to voting, you know, my young, my youngest made, made this post and she asked me if, if some of any of this was true. And I said, well, what your generation is going to have to understand that the generation before you and my generation didn't fully get is, is that your group is going to be the group that has to change the way things are working now, because We've tried, and and obviously what we're doing isn't working right. Right. Well, we've come a long way since where it was, but we still have a long way to go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for the first time ever, I saw my oldest understand fully why voting became important. And it's, you know, we we tend to think about who we're voting for for president, but we Mm -hmm. don't tend to think about who they're going to appoint. You know, and and she she had that. Oh, I get why why the presidential election is such a big deal. You know, you're voting on a potential Supreme Court justice replacement. You're mm-hmm. voting on, you know, a person to select a solid cabinet of advisors. You're voting on. That's that's it. You're voting for somebody that's going to run the schools, run affordable housing, run our defense programs, run. You're voting for all those people to go around the president. And honestly, that's what I thought would happen with Donald Trump. He would surround himself with maybe conservatives and but status quo types, you know, and he would mm-hmm. just he would just be lazy about it. I didn't know he was going to be so active, you know. <laughs> You know, and, and, and that's just it is what you've seen is I hire all the best people, but mm-hmm. apparently he fi- fires all the idiots and mm-hmm. there's been a lot of idiots getting fired apparently. So, you know, what's, what would we say? Like, you know, people don't quit or get, you know, necessarily get fired by, because they're doing a bad job. They quit or get fired because they have a bad boss. Mm. There you go. That's a good way to look at it. I mean, say what you will about, you know, some of the people he's hired. One of the people that I think that Trump actually got right was James Mattis. Okay. I mean, I'm not unopposed to James Mattis. And in terms of understanding military, what the military needs in terms of understanding, you know, just how things are battlefield wise around the world. 
James Mattis was probably his best pick. Um, I just, on the on the conservative side, I want to say that James Mattis seems to be stuck in a in a nine eleven post nine eleven sort of military, and we, at some point we just got to get past that the fact that the Middle East is our enemy. But I, you know, he knows he knows warfare, and he's been around to understand the politics of the military, and I and, that's yep. what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, 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 and with a guy like James Mattis, you know, it was, it was the only one of the few very solid picks I would say that he has, Mm. but even he couldn't manage to deal with Donald Trump. Right. And, and, and that should say something because that dude was old breed Marine. Those guys dealt with shit on top of shit and never quit. Right. And that should tell you something about how bad it is to work for Donald Trump. It's like a guy who could literally stick out the worst of the worst couldn't stick out Donald Trump. (laughs) And I want to say, I always had this thought that if Democrats wanted to sit there and complain about Donald Trump, but saw the world burning, wouldn't you be like standing in line to fill these positions just to be like Donald Trump? It's about more than you. It's about America. I don't believe in your politics, but I'm willing to fill this cabinet seat so that you have somebody steady there, you know, and just get fired and just have a line of Democrats applying and being denied applying being denied to at but, least show you're trying to do something you know but that that goes back to the whole you know that goes back to the whole issue of if we don't have our guy in we kind of hope things crash and burn right and and unfortunately when when it's the country that's at stake the idea of crashing and burning should not be what excites you Right. You want to be the savior mentality. You want to be the white knight mentality. You want to be the one that's like, I came in and I filled that position and at least nobody died because of me, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so to know that, you know, hopefully the younger generation realizes that, you know, in their lifetime, they're going to have to be the ones that vote in somebody who picks a new Supreme Court justice or, or two or three, yeah. you know, that they're, you know, that they're going to pick people that are going to be like the head of state, you know, the, the State Department that are going to be out talking to our allies, our enemies that are that are either going to try and bring about peace and stability or, you know, if worse comes to worse, be the ones that have to head into a fight. Yep. And it's not just about voting for president. And it's, it's, it's about voting for so much more than that. And when people yeah. finally stop just thinking about, well, it's either Trump or Biden, it's, it's not just about Trump or Biden. It's about all of the potential things that are going to be filled, all of the potential uh, justices, court decisions, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not we actually ever pull out of the Middle East or not. It's all about that. And, and, yes. and getting people either to vote for the first time or back to being able to vote is, is so important. Yeah. And I, I want to say that HR one also, um, is looking to take dark money out of politics. I don't know how much, I don't know how much time we have. We're, we're in wrap up mode for an hour. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to continue after that. Um, I'm, we'll see. 
might have a little bit, but yeah, I you wanna, know, I, I just, think I did want to touch on the dark money, the citizens oh, united, the fact that a that a corporation is now considered a person, but yet a person to social security is considered a corporation. Uh-huh. And how ass backwards that is. If you can do that in like what do we got? Fifteen, sixteen minutes. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. You know, the biggest. I think one of the biggest problems that we currently have in in the election cycle is the sheer amount of money that gets thrown at getting a candidate elected. I want you, yeah. to, you know, you think about it, you know, the, the, was it the, the Obama Romney uh, election was the first time that donations surpassed $1 billion mm. for campaign funding. Ouch. Yeah. And I don't you like know, it. I don't like it at all. I see it as uh, another way to just suck money away from us. You you want our vote, but our vote is represented in donation form. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're just, you're just continually filling your coffers if you're continually running. And so you're continually taking money from us to fund your lifestyle. And I don't like that. You know what I mean? Well, and really what people should be concerned about is the sheer number of, you know, individuals and corporations that are donating money while telling people that, you know, they don't have the ability to, you know, pay for health care or pay for benefits or pay for, it's like, wait, hold on. You have a, you have that much money to get somebody elected, you know, to throw down, but you, you're telling me that you can't, you know, give a a 25 cent an hour raise. That's a great point. It's like, you know, our anger gets misplaced a lot of the times because we, we get anger, we get angry with the, with the candidates for all that money that they're raising. It's like, you know, these are, these are people that are heads of companies and corporations that are throwing this money down, you know, as, as the worker, you should be angry with them Yeah. because while you're struggling to, you know, make ends meet and they're telling you that they don't got money to, you know, make sure you have a better health insurance where you're not, you know, have, you don't have catastrophic coverage essentially. Mm-hmm. They got, they've got money to throw down to try and get somebody else elected. So that That's way funny. they might potentially possibly get a tax break. Maybe. Right. It's kind of like, I've always seen like, everybody knows what Oreo is, right? Mm-hmm. Oreo never has to put out another commercial again. They will always sell Oreos. And so when I see an Oreo commercial, I say, you're just raising the price of my Oreos. You could not put out commercials and you could then lower the price of your product and more of us could enjoy your product. You know? It's like Arizona tea. Think about mm-hmm. it. How much has Arizona tea been ever since you were a kid? Oh, 99 yeah. cents. Meanwhile, the price of a Coca-Cola, I remember buying I remember buying a bottle for 75 cents. Oh yeah. Now what is it? It's almost 2 bucks. Yeah. Yet somehow the same can of Arizona tea is still 99 cents. Right. There's no research and development in bread. Why did it go up like $3? Why did the same loaf of bread that used to be 49 cents, why is it 2.99 now? You know what I mean? <laughs> It's why is be, it? it it's got to be marketing and cost of living but yet cost of living goes up in the cost of the bread but not in the person that makes it or in, for the person buying it mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think that's that's one of the issues that we have with, you know, the inflation of of the price of goods is is that if if workers were getting paid better, we probably wouldn't complain so much. That's right. We'd be like we'd be like, oh yeah, the price of bread went up a quarter, but you know, now the person that you know is making a loaf of bread is they're they've you know gone to making another quarter an hour or another dollar an hour or whatever. Yeah. But but when you see how wage stagnation took effect for the last 10 years, it's like, so you mean to tell me that, you know, I'm paying an extra 50 cents for a bottle of Coca-Cola in that time period, Mm -hmm. but they haven't made any more money. Right. The, The individual worker hasn't really. Exactly. But the corporation stock went up. So, and, and, you know, and, and there, there goes, you know, you know, I think one of the biggest things that we also have to think about too is, is that we don't know, we don't always think about what benefits they might have. Maybe Coca-Cola employees are getting, you know, company stock in lieu of getting, you know, a raise, in Mm -hmm. which case, you know what, as long as the company keeps its head, you know, head up and doesn't do anything stupid, it makes you money. And I, I did notice because I followed Coca-Cola for a while that they're developing environmentally friendly bottles that dissipate in water. Mm -hmm. And, and don't leave a negative trace. And so I'm about that research and development. So when Absolutely. I do drink a soft drink, it might be a Coca-Cola product over a Pepsi product who doesn't do those things. But they, I, again, if I'm not making more money, I'm just buying less Coca-Cola and drinking more tap water. Exactly. And, and, and you know, like I said, a lot of times we don't have problem paying for one or two things. It's usually, you know, we don't have a problem paying more because, you know, that means that the worker's getting paid more or we don't have a problem paying more because it might fit some sort of, you know, internal uh, mm-hmm. feel good that we have. You made know, like in America. Said, made in America or environmentally friendly or, mm-hmm. you know, made with renewable resources, you mm-hmm. know, the, like, for example, the shift away from palm oil to, any other type of oil or people who are, you know, still using palm oil, but now they've shifted to sustainable palm oil. That's not affecting habitat, you know, and to me that has been, that hasn't been anything that has anything to do with voting on regulation. That's been voting with your wallet. That's made that stuff possible. That's right. I was just, you just brought me to the point. I was just in my head. That's how we show our support for how we want corporations to be directed is by buying the things that we, we care about. Exactly. You know, or not buying, you know, yes. like, like here, for example, you know, um, they, you know, in Olympia, they just put in it, the first Chick-fil-A in Thurston County hmm. and I won't be buying it. Nope. Good for you. I've never had a Chick-fil-A sandwich and, and everybody tells me, Oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. And this, that, and the other, I'm like, Okay. It's it's not. It's really not. No. It's it's really not. You know, Popeyes makes a pretty good chicken sandwich. <laughs> Better chicken sandwich. It's but I've I you know, even when I finally moved down to a place that had a Chick-fil-A, I lived I lived in an apartment complex in Phoenix with a Chick-fil-A right behind me. Hmm. Still never went. Why would you? It's like I, I knew what, you know. I knew what the the president or the the founder of the company was using the money to do, and I don't agree with that. And I, you know, I don't care that you know these places are individually owned and franchised. 
it's about the fact that that person at the top still gets a cut of that money right. and that money is being used to fund things that fundamentally I don't agree with. And so if you're donating to Donald Trump and he's using that money to do things you fundamentally don't believe in, then it's the same thing. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the corporations that we're investing in. Well, and, 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 and the irony behind all of it is just absolutely hilarious to me because you have somebody who's attacked China and attacked China and attacked China and where's his stuff made? Yep, China. China. The iron, China. <laughs> the irony of it is, the irony of it is, has not escaped me. You know, the fact that, you know, all of his high quality brand stuff is made in, in China and his people are buying it. And then, you know, when he finally got called out on the hypocrisy of it, you know, he blew up and this, that, and the yeah. other. And it's like, dude, yeah. how, you know, how do you not know where your stuff is made? Exactly. Or where Ivanka's getting her trademarks from or where a uh, new, a new, uh, what was that one? It drove me nuts. They, China built a, a theme park and mm -hmm. it had something to do with us, like letting go of a, a telecom company, like we stopped investing a tele, in a telecom co corporation in China. So China allowed this theme park to happen. And it was this really weird story that just like blew by in the news. But I was just like, wait, oh, what, yeah. what, what, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's all a mess. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, people don't tend to pay attention to. You know, the the man at the top said China bad, so China bad. It's like, yeah, well, China definitely has its issues. I don't necessarily agree with, you know, oh the person God, at the yeah. top's assessment of it. But there are issues that actually have to be dealt with, like, you know, like the mass incarceration and slavery of Uyghur Muslims. Yes. Surprisingly, that's one thing that they've actually, you know, gotten right is, you know, the whole, you know, no longer can they can uh, federal agencies buy anything from uh, that area of China. Hmm. Basically, you know, because of the fact that it's being, you know, beca because of, you know, the genocide and the slave labor that's yep. being used there. but if you know if you think that that's stopped it and you're patting you know yourself on the back thinking hooray we did the thing all china's doing is figuring out how to ship it to another area rebrand it and then sell it to us that's all and that's you, you can also look at the end of any disney <clears throat> movie, apparently and you can see that disney is working with china in that area you mm -hmm. know so so it's it's you know everybody thinks that they're stopping the problem but really it's just the the cost of the cost of getting the same thing is just going up is all you're doing and we have to mention mention hong kong as well mm -hmm. because those protests were they were a definition in how to protest i think mm -hmm. just filling up public areas with mm -hmm. protesters and not doing a thing other than that there's a thing about peaceful protest is it's so it's so useful because it's almost impossible to do in its entirety because mm -hmm. you always want people to react. There's always going to be those people that are reacting negatively. And mm -hmm. that's what the news, that's what the tyrant wants you to see. But if it was just peaceful protests and I ask people to watch Gandhi all the time, you would see how effective it could be if everybody was unified and there wasn't all of that stuff. Well, also too, because, you know, 
if you do something to a peaceful protester, you know, it goes back to that, you know, they don't have to be right. You just have to be wrong. And if you do something wrong to a peaceful protester, people automatically assume that whatever it is they're doing is right. Right. Unless you can show footage of looters and violent behavior and then do something to the peaceful protester in this next then you Then, then you, all you've done is the same thing. All you've done is shown that they're wrong and people go, so your heavy hat handedness now has to be right. And yep. the answer is no. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's not how people think. It's it's very binary, as we've talked about so many yeah, times. That's right. And so that's where the whole that's where all of this voting comes down to is is that you're not just voting on you're not just voting on right and wrong. You're voting on what you want to be done right the majority of the time. Yeah, in the future. Uh, yep, in the future. Uh, well, Jeffrey. I love these conversations we have, you know, we're going to have to do this again. I think we want to cover more of HR one at some point, because there's this massive thing in there called protecting our elections. And I really wanted to talk about that, but we might have to do that in the next show. You know what I mean? I think, I think we'll definitely need to, and just to, as a precursor, guess what? Russia, China, Iran, they're all messing with our elections again. Hello, North Korea. That's right. You know it. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Absolutely. <laughs> to those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not Stitcher Smart Radio app, Audible, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making.